Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topics we'll be covering today is, in general, an introduction to trauma. And I'm lucky enough to be joined today by my study buddy extraordinaire, Ben Finlay, who is going to help me do the trauma modules. He is, in general, very good at trauma and also just a all-round fantastic human being. I'm very lucky to have him as my friend and also as a study buddy. So thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be part of the podcast and it's very strange to be hearing you recording this live. Normally I'm listening to it in my car on the way to work. Well, thanks for coming on. Did you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, like you, I'm a general surgery trainee studying for my exam and hoping to sit in 2022. Yeah, we worked together in Darwin a couple of years ago and have been keeping in touch and studying together since then. And I've obviously followed the podcast since its inception uh, and found it incredibly useful. So congratulations. And uh, yeah, it's great to be a part of it today. So why don't we get started just in general by talking about trauma? This episode, I thought we could cover some of the topics about primary survey, secondary survey, and some of the, I guess, concepts and pathophysiology of trauma. And this would be a good introduction to the topic. I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about the principles of management of major trauma patients. In my mind, I think of it as pre-hospital preparation, primary assessment with your primary survey, and then basically it depends on the patient's physiology where to go from there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, although I think the emphasis for our exam is going to be more about once the patient has arrived you know, in the emergency department and, and going from there. But yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. So let's start by talking about pre-hospital preparation and primary survey. So pre-hospital preparation is essentially going to be activation of your trauma team. So activating a trauma alert or trauma call based on the information you've been given by the pre-hospital team. And at my institution, we would all assemble, we would allocate roles, put on uh, lead gowns and PPE and set up any fluid warmers if we needed them, bear huggers and activate a massive transfusion protocol if that was indicated from the information we'd been provided. And then we all wait anxiously until the trauma patient arrives. And typically you're going to get a pretty quick handover from the ambulance team, which characteristically is talked about as a missed handover. So M is for mechanism of injury. I is for the injuries sustained or that the team thinks the patient has. S is for signs and symptoms. So what the patient's observations are and what they've seen on the patient. And T is for treatment. So the treatment that the patient has been given in the pre-hospital setting. So after this, you move on to the primary survey. And I think of the primary survey as A, B, C, D, E. So A is for airway and C-spine. And the assessment of the primary survey, I should say, is a systematic assessment, but also concurrent resuscitation. And you shouldn't be moving on from airway until the airway is secure. And you shouldn't be moving on from breathing until you're happy with breathing. You shouldn't be moving on to circulation. 
the aim of the primary survey is to simultaneously identify and treat threats to life in the order that they will kill the patient. So airway and C-spine, you're going to clear the airway, establish high-flow oxygen. If the patient is not protecting their airway, then you need to obtain a definitive airway with a cuffed tube and also consider whether the patient may need a surgical airway. That might be indicated if there's bleeding, deformity or edema, and oral intubation is unsuccessful. So B is for breathing. I always check to see the trachea is midline, assess the respiratory rate, look at the chest, and I usually put my hands on either side of the chest and feel for bilateral rise and fall, look for any deformity or penetrating or open wounds, and then auscultate, make sure there's bilateral air entry. And in my mind, I'm trying to rule out those immediate life-threatening problems such as tension pneumothorax, a massive hemothorax, flail chest, pulmonary contusions, and tracheobronchial injuries. And if there's any of these things, then really the treatment you do at the B stage is to insert a intercostal catheter. And if the patient's really unwell, I would do bilateral finger thoracotomies or a thoracotomy on the side of the injury before putting in or setting up for the chest tube. I think that's an important point just to acknowledge on breathing that the old start ATLS teaching talks about decompressing the chest with a needle decompression but um, the latest evidence and the latest iteration of ATLS has gone away from that and finger thoracostomies are the first line. Yeah really important point thanks Ben. So moving on to C for circulation. So circulation is really an assessment for shock. So I feel the pulse is it thready? Look at the extremities are they cool pale? Is there any capillary refill? Is it slow? Is there any obvious evidence of blood loss? And it takes some time, but you should also be getting a um, non-invasive blood pressure as well. Something I read that I found really useful was assessing the neck veins to try to figure out whether your shock is due to blood loss or due to some sort of um, obstructive cause. So if the neck veins are flat, then it's probably going to be blood loss. And the sites of bleeding are blood on the floor and four more. So external bleeding into the chest, which you would look at for a chest X-ray, into the abdomen, which you can assess with a fast scan, into the pelvis, which we assess with a pelvic X-ray, and into the long bones of the extremities, which you really assess with a clinical exam. And then if the neck veins are distended, then your differentials include tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, myocardial failure, such as cardiogenic shock from a myocardial contusion or an air embolism, which is relatively rare. I've never seen, but um, can cause this picture. And I liked that as a sort of concept of how to differentiate in that primary survey. So as part of C, I also put resuscitation. So you want to stop any obvious bleeding, put in large IV access and upsize with a RIC line if you can. I send bloods at that point. And so I'd send a full blood count group and hold, coagulation studies, blood gas, and any other bloods I thought were relevant. Try to identify the source of blood loss with those tests I mentioned. Give appropriate resuscitation fluids and activate your massive transfusion protocol if it's required. And then being mindful to prevent and treat coagulopathy and prevent hypothermia. Is now a good time to talk about hemostatic resuscitation or shall we talk about that later? Why don't we mention it now and we can go into a bit more detail later on. You raised the point of resuscitating as per the massive transfusion protocol, but 
Again, old style ATLS talks about giving a two litre crystalloid bolus and we seem to have really moved away from that in the trauma literature. So moving towards hemostatic resuscitation that's increasingly guided by uh, adjuncts like thromboelastometry and thromboelastography. Uh, a lot of the literature talks about using uh, a one-to-one-to-one ratio of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma and platelets um, initially uh, and minimising use of crystalloid in hemorrhagic shock. We can probably talk more specifically about massive transfusion protocol and permissive hypertension and those different assays in a little while if you're happy to finish off the primary survey. Cool. So D is for disability, assessing neurology with the GCS, looking at the pupils. The important thing to do, especially if a patient's going to be intubated, is to try to assess their spontaneous movements and strength of their extremities and also their sensation because lateralizing signs can be really helpful to guide management of any potential head injury. And it's important to remember with disability that patients can have neurological issues because of a primary intracranial injury or neurological injury or because of hypoxia and hypertension as a consequence of shock. So being mindful of both of those things. And then to finish us off with E for environment, I will uncover the patient systemically and then cover each of the limbs after I assess them to try to keep the patient warm. And so you're going to look at all of the patient to look for injuries, make sure the patient's had a log roll and then keep the patient warm. And warming can be both by keeping them covered with a blanket, with a bear hugger and by using warmed fluids and also by keeping the environment warm. And then last thing really is the adjuncts. So I've sort of mentioned chest X-ray, pelvic X-ray and fast scan as part of C. These should be done while you're doing your primary survey. And that's why we put lead on. So the x-rays are happening while you're assessing the patient. And other adjuncts include blood gases, ECG, placing a nasogastric tube in an indwelling catheter if that's appropriate, um, and also just your general monitoring with your pulse oximetry and blood pressure. I've mentioned it briefly. Did you want to tell us a little bit about FAST scans? So FAST is uh, an adjunct to the primary survey. Uh, it stands for Focused Assessment of, no, what does it stand for? Yeah, I think it's Focused Assessment Sonography in Trauma. Yeah. It should be Focused Sonographic Assessment in Trauma, but obviously FASAT wasn't quite as good <laughs> as FAST. Exactly. <laughs> So it was first described as uh, three sonographic views uh, looking at the abdomen and then it was expanded into also include the chest. And the principle of FAST is that we're looking for any evidence of pathologic intra-abdominal fluid that would indicate blood. In the abdomen, we're looking at the windows uh, in left upper quadrant, right upper quadrant and in the pelvis. So in the left upper quadrant, we're looking at the region between the spleen and the kidney, in the right upper quadrant between the liver and the kidney, and in the pelvis between the bladder and the rectum. You can also do a subsiphoid view to look at the pericardium to look for any evidence of pericardial effusion. And the eFAST adds a bilateral anterior chest views looking for evidence of a pneumothorax. Interesting with fast scan, it's quite sensitive in the hemodynamically unstable patient. So in terms of picking up a pathology, 
And it's pretty useless in patients who are hemodynamically stable. In my experience, everyone gets a fast scan. And I think that's partly because it takes quite a long time to learn and to get fast at doing it. And so the people who do it can practice on stable patients and have that time and then have those skills available for when someone comes in who's quite hemodynamically unstable. But I guess it's just important to realize that patients could be bleeding into the abdomen and have a negative fast if they're stable and there's just not enough blood to see because it has to be, I think it's 500 mils in the abdomen to actually be able to see the blood. That's right. And the other thing to remember is that the fast can be repeated if the patient's condition changes and that may influence your ongoing management. So I think once you finish the primary survey, the decision really comes what's next for the patient and we need to work out the patient's disposition and that really comes down to an assessment of their hemodynamics and an understanding of the injuries that the patient sustained. And I think in in my institution, the decision is really can this patient go to the CT scanner or do they need an operation immediately? And how do you make that decision? It can sometimes be a difficult decision to make but it is, as I said, an assessment of their hemodynamics. And I'm reluctant to use the word stable, but it's all about relative stability and how the patient's responding to resuscitation because I think modern trauma care often does demand a comprehensive understanding of all the patient's injuries as early as possible. So if the patient can safely have a trauma CT scan, then that's usually the best outcome. Mm. I have used the concept of a really stable patient, so somebody who's come in stable and stayed stable, and then someone who's come in unstable but's been able to be resuscitated and is now, you know, hemodynamics are relatively normal, and then the patient who's really unresuscitatable. So they've come in unstable, you've given them massive transfusion and they're still unstable. Mm. And I think really that last group goes straight to theatre. That middle group's a bit tricky, but Mm. most of the time you can get them to a CT in my institution, that's located in the emergency department. And when you do activate the trauma call, um, that's held for you. So there's not going to be somebody in there and you're not going to be made waiting. And then in that first group, it's pretty clear that you're able to do a CT scan. If the patient is stable and has been stable from the start, usually I'd go on to a secondary survey. Did you want to talk to us about how you would perform a secondary survey? Sure. So the the principle of a secondary survey is uh, taking a more detailed history from the patient and then performing a systematic top-to-toe examination. So in terms of the history, it's often described as uh, using the mnemonic AMPLE. So that's looking at allergies, patient's current medications, their past medical history or pregnancy when they last ate, and then asking about the events and the environment Uh, related to the injury and gathering the history is going to be a combination of talking to the patient the pre-hospital responders and and family Uh, it's also useful to ask about tetanus status if you can get that information at the time and then I proceed to do a full head-to-toe examination of the patient palpating every joint squeezing every limb looking inside every orifice and ordering further investigations as the clinical suspicion requires. I'd hope that most surgical registrars at this point in their training have performed a secondary survey. So probably out of the interest of everybody being very bored, we might not go through that in too much more detail. Um, I definitely describe it as top to toe, but I also saw top to toe and front to back. 
which I liked in terms of making sure I don't forget to do a log roll in the exam. Definitely can't forget the log roll. So let's talk a little bit about the Massive Transfusion Protocol. The Massive Transfusion Protocol is aimed at transfusing patients with a predefined ratio of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets to mimic whole blood. And the idea is that this balanced blood product resuscitation is going to prevent coagulopathy of resuscitation. In terms of a definition of massive transfusion, the definition is more than 100% of the patient's blood volume needing to be resuscitated in less than six hours or administration of 50% of the patient's blood volume in one hour. But this isn't a particularly useful classification because you don't know about this until after the fact. So I think more important for us to know is when you should be activating a massive transfusion. And I don't know about you, but I've read a whole different number of reasons why you should activate a massive transfusion. I don't know if your institution has a specific guideline. I think a massive transfusion protocol should be activated whenever you think there could potentially be a severely injured patient. Um, It's better to have that blood on hand. It can always be sent back to the lab. So if there's a significant injury and the patient sounds sick, that's when I pull the trigger. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Um, And at the end of all of the lists that I've seen of reasons to activate it is at the discretion of the treating physician. So I think that's going to be my approach in the exam. Some of the other, I guess, criteria that I've seen are that it can be activated once the fifth unit of blood is ordered. And also that some hematology labs will have a trigger where once two units have been transfused and there's a request for four more, that they will automatically activate a massive transfusion. And I've also seen loss of more than two units and ongoing bleeding. So I think your explanation is probably the best that you have a bleeding patient who's majorly injured and you're suspicious that they're going to need a lot of blood, better to activate it early, give them a balanced transfusion from the start and avoid coagulopathy. Yeah. And I think that's going to improve our chances of stopping the bleeding early by by giving them a balanced transfusion. Definitely. So activating a massive transfusion protocol will vary by institution, but at my institution, it will let the blood bank know There's a haematologist on call who gets told. And typically theatres and anaesthetics are also advised or the the treating um, team. So that means that everybody's got that frame in their mind that this patient's going to be bleeding a lot and that everybody's um, aware that they have the resources available to them that they need. And the goals of massive transfusion are to recognise blood loss early, maintain perfusion and oxygenation by restoring blood volume and haemoglobin, arrest of bleeding, and judicious use of blood products to correct coagulopathy. And this is done by, as I've mentioned, a balanced transfusion. And the ratio that's used or that I've used in the past is a one-to-one-to-one ratio of packed cells to FFP to platelets, but that will vary a little bit depending on whether your institution uses um, pooled platelets, which can be up to five or six units. So it may be a um, five-to-five-to-one depending on what you're actually provided in your pack. And basically, there are some certain goals that you want to work towards with your transfusion. So this includes, obviously, stopping the bleeding early, maintaining the patient's pH at more than 7.3, keeping the lactate at less than 2, keeping the INR at less than 1.5, making sure platelets are more than 50, 
fibrinogen is more than two, patient's temperature is more than 36, and the calcium is more than 1.1. When you activate a massive transfusion, you need to send some baseline bloods to the lab, and this will include their full blood count, a full coagulation profile. And if you have in your institution, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, doing a thromboelastogram or a Rotom test. And you need to repeat the full set of bloods after every six units of blood is given. And depending on the blood results will guide what your further transfusion should be. So if the prothrombin time or APTT is more than 1.5 mid-normal, then you can give an extra four units of FFP. If the fibrinogen is less than one, you give 10 units of cryoprecipitate. And if the platelets are less than 75, you give a pooled unit of platelets. But that can change a little bit depending on if your institution uses TEG or Rotom, which we'll talk about later. And the end point of your transfusion really is that there's no significant ongoing surgical bleeding and that all of those parameters I talked about earlier have been satisfied. So the patient's not cold, the pH is more than 7.3, fibrinogen is more than 1.5, INR is less than 1.5, and hemoglobin usually between 80 and 100. And in reality, the massive transfusion is going to start in the resus bay and probably continue to ICU after we've stopped the bleeding. Yeah. And mostly is done by the anaesthetist, thankfully. <laughs> Because it seems pretty complicated. Absolutely. And usually we've got other things to think about, like stopping the bleeding. Yeah. When would you give tranexamic acid to your patients as an adjunct to control bleeding? That's a good question. I think we need to look to the CRASH-2 trial, which is a, a randomised controlled trial that looked at the role of tranexamic acid in trauma patients. It's a relatively old study. It was done more than 10 years ago, and it looked at the effect of tranexamic acid on mortality in trauma. Uh, the inclusion criteria were adult patients with significant hemorrhage or who are at risk of significant hemorrhage within eight hours of their injury and they were randomised to placebo or intervention. The intervention was one gram of tranexamic acid over 10 minutes and then one gram over eight hours and the outcome was in hospital mortality at 28 days. And the results were that all-cause mortality was reduced with the intervention, with a number needed to treat of 67 patients being treated to save one life. Given that this is a relatively cheap intervention and uh, has a reasonable chance at helping my patient, uh, I think it's always indicated in a trauma patient, severely injured trauma patient. I hadn't looked at the specific details of that trial before today in preparation for this podcast, but I was surprised that the most statistically significant difference in mortality was if it was given within three hours. And I know that a couple of years ago, they were doing a trial of the ambulance team or pre-hospital responders giving the tranexamic acid or the loading dose, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so I'm not sure if that's routine over in South Australia, but it's definitely been happening over here. Yeah, I think that trial was taking place in our uh, in our state as well and um, we were continuing the treatment in hospital based on the patient's randomisation outside of mm. hospital. So I'm not sure of the results of the trial. It makes sense if the most effects seen within three hours getting it in early. Absolutely.
Well, now perhaps we should move on to talk about shock. Go ahead. My definition of shock is inadequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients to tissues causing cellular dysfunction and injury. This is initially reversible, but with a prolonged shock, it becomes irreversible due to cellular damage and then ultimately cell death. There's lots of different causes of shock, uh, and in trauma, it's hemorrhagic shock until proven otherwise. But we should also think about obstructive shock, inflammatory or septic shock, cardiogenic shock, neurogenic shock, or hypovolemic shock of another cause. In the trauma literature, there's an entity called traumatic shock as well, which is variably described and accepted. Traumatic shock is defined as shock in the polytrauma patient, and it's often due to a combination of multiple different causes of shock, as well as the patient being severely injured and having a systemic inflammatory response. Thanks for that introduction, Ben. Pathophysiology of shock is probably something else we should mention that we could be asked about in the exam. If we think all the way back to medical school, cardiac output is the stroke volume by the heart rate. And the patient's blood pressure is essentially determined by the cardiac output and the total peripheral resistance. So starting with the cardiac output being a combination of heart rate and stroke volume. In trauma and hemorrhagic shock, patients become tachycardic to try to increase the heart rate to improve their cardiac output. In terms of the stroke volume, the stroke volume of the heart depends on three factors, the preload, the contractility of the heart muscle, and the afterload. So in hemorrhagic shock, the preload is reduced because of the hypovolemia. The contractility of the heart may be increased in the short term due to stress hormone release, but in general is going to be affected by acidosis and also potentially direct trauma to the heart muscle, semi-cardial contusions, which can reduce the cardiac output. And then the afterload is affected in trauma, in hypovolemic shock, because a response to hypovolemia is vasoconstriction to increase the afterload. Another way of thinking about the pathophysiology of shock is that there's a number of compensatory mechanisms that the body uses to compensate for the blood loss. So I've mentioned vasoconstriction, and the body will constrict cutaneous vessels, vessels in muscles, and vessels in the visceral circulation to increase the peripheral vascular resistance. And this is to try to preserve blood flow to the kidneys, the heart, and the brain. The heart rate increases, the diastolic blood pressure increases, which reduces the pulse pressure. And by that, I mean the number or the distance between the systolic blood pressure number and the diastolic blood pressure number is reduced. And that can be quite an early sign in hemorrhagic shock. The body releases a number of hormones, such as histamine, bradykinin, and stress hormones to increase the sympathetic nervous system and also to decrease the parasympathetic nervous system. Factors are released from wounds that will lead to a systemic inflammatory response. So neutrophils will release superoxides and elastases. Cytokines are released into the systemic circulation. 
chemokines and damage-associated molecular patterns, which all contribute to systemic inflammatory response syndrome and also can contribute to organ failure and eventually, if the bleeding isn't addressed, to multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. Ben, did you want to talk to us about the different classes of shock? So the ATLS guidelines do describe classes of shock based on the patient's initial presentation. I'm not sure about you, Amanda, but I don't find this particularly clinically useful, although I think it's something we we should know. So the classes of shock are presumed to be due to hemorrhagic shock and correlate with the volume of blood loss. So class 1 hemorrhagic shock is a blood loss of up to 15% of blood volume. A patient with class 1 shock will usually not be tachycardic, have a normal blood pressure, may have an increased pulse pressure. They would appear slightly anxious, but otherwise their physiology is relatively undisturbed. Class 2 shock is a 15 to 30% loss of blood volume. A patient in class 2 shock will be tachycardic with a heart rate of 100 to 120. They'll have a normal blood pressure. Their respiratory rate may be increased. Their urine output mildly decreased and the patient will appear anxious. Class 3 shock is a 30 to 40% blood loss. These patients are tachycardic at 120 to 140. They have a reduced blood pressure. Their respiratory rate is raised 30 to 40. They become oliguric and may become confused. And the final class is class 4, where a patient's lost more than 40% of their blood volume. These patients are extremely tachycardic, over 140. They're hypotensive. Uh, They are tachypneic, anuric, and confused or lethargic. So the key thing to remember really is that class 1, 2, 3, and 4 shock can be remembered like a tennis scoring system. So class 1, 2, 3, and 4 being 0 to 15%, 15 to 30%, 30 to 40% and more than 40%. I guess the other thing to mention in terms of the classes of shock is that there's specific patients that might not respond specifically within these guidelines and there's patient characteristics that will make them respond differently. So in older patients, they will have a reduced catecholamine response and their end organs will be really sensitive to the hypotension. So they may lose urine output or become confused much earlier. They may be on beta blockers, so you may not get a heart rate response. And they often have decreased respiratory and renal reserves. So you may see changes much earlier than a young, healthy patient who could compensate for for longer. Athletes as well will be very well compensated to blood loss and they may have very little signs but have lost a significant amount of blood and have late responses. Patients who are pregnant have a hypervolemic state, so they can often compensate as well and have a late presentation of shock. And patients who have pacemakers, again, may not respond in the fashion that you would expect them to. The other thing I didn't mention earlier in terms of pathophysiology that took me a little while to get my head around is the pulse pressure. So when you lose blood, your body will increase your diastolic blood pressure mostly because of the vasoconstriction from what I understand. 
And so that's why the pulse pressure or the difference between the systolic and the diastolic number will get less. And that's quite an early sign of shock when you look at those different classes. So that's something to be aware of. So FAST is uh, an adjunct to the primary survey. Uh, it stands for Focused Assessment of, no, what does it stand for? Yeah, I think it's Focused Assessment Sonography in Trauma. Yeah. It should be Focused Sonographic Assessment in Trauma, but obviously FASAT wasn't quite as good <laughs> as FAST. Exactly. So it was first described as uh, three sonographic views uh, looking at the abdomen, and then it was expanded into also include the chest. And the principle of FAST is that we're looking for any evidence of pathologic intra-abdominal fluid that would indicate blood. In the abdomen, we're looking at the windows uh, in left upper quadrant, right upper quadrant, and in the pelvis. So in the left upper quadrant, we're looking at the region between the spleen and the kidney, in the right upper quadrant between the liver and the kidney, and in the pelvis between the bladder and the rectum. You can also do a subsiphoid view to look at the pericardium to look for any evidence of pericardial effusion. And the eFAST adds a bilateral anterior chest views looking for evidence of a pneumothorax. Interesting with fast scan. It's quite sensitive in the hemodynamically unstable patient, so in terms of picking up a pathology, and it's pretty useless in patients who are hemodynamically stable. In my experience, everyone gets a fast scan, and I think that's partly because it takes quite a long time to learn and to get fast at doing it, and so the people who do it can practice on stable patients and have that time and then have those skills available for when someone comes in who's quite hemodynamically unstable. But I guess it's just important to realize that patients could be bleeding into the abdomen and have a negative fast if they're stable and there's just not enough blood to see because it has to be, I think it's 500 mils in the abdomen to actually be able to see the blood. That's right. And the other thing to remember is that the fast can be repeated if the patient's condition changes and that may influence your ongoing management. Let's talk about permissive hypotension for a moment. Permissive hypotension is where we accept the patient's blood pressure sitting at a lower than normal pressure uh, in the context of severe bleeding so that the patient doesn't exsanguinate further due to our uh, resuscitation efforts. It's contraindicated in patients with a head injury because permissive hypotension in this setting will uh, potentiate a secondary brain injury. So we do need to be careful about patient selection when we're thinking about permissive hypotension. The goals of uh, permissive hypotension are, are really accepting a blood pressure that allows the patient to still remain conscious and talking. Uh, and usually this is a target of 80 to 90 millimetres of mercury. In a head injured patient, the systolic target should remain uh, above 110 millimetres of mercury. I think in patients where you're considering permissive hypertension, 
the goal should be to try to maintain that for the shortest possible period of time by obtaining early hemostasis and stopping the bleeding. And that typically in that situation, we're talking about a severely injured patient with significant bleeding. So you'd be going straight to theatre and maybe even using damage control principles. We've talked a lot about stopping the bleeding, but we haven't mentioned how we might stop the bleeding. <laughs> Amanda, what are the what are the things in your armamentarium to stop the bleeding? It really depends where the bleeding is coming from. So in peripheral bleeding, so bleeding from limbs, we can use tourniquets or point pressure. If the bleeding is in the chest, abdomen, or pelvis, typically this is operative control of bleeding. So in my institution, we would call a OPSTAT, which is a fast transfer to the operating theatre. And the principles would be damage control. So we can talk a little bit about damage control if you want. So the idea of damage control surgery is that you want to minimise the time in the operating theatre for a severely injured and grossly unstable patient. And the two goals of damage control surgery are, number one, to stop the bleeding and number two, to control contamination. And you're trying to avoid the lethal triad, which is acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. So damage control surgery needs to be done with concurrent damage control resuscitation by the anaesthetist, which is all of that massive transfusion protocol, goal-directed resuscitation we just talked about. So in the operating theatre, you want to control hemorrhage from the chest, abdomen, or pelvis, and hopefully your primary survey and those adjuncts we've talked about have given you an indication about where the bleeding is. So for chest trauma, typically the patient will have a hemothorax and you put in a chest strain and the patient has either more than 500 mils out all at once or more than 200 mils out per hour for two consecutive hours, and that would be an indication to control bleeding in the chest. If you have thoracic surgical team available to you, then they can come and, and control that bleeding for you. I guess in the exam, we're country surgeons in Dingo Creek. So in my hands, I would probably say I would do a trauma thoracotomy and suck out all the blood, pack the thorax and try to identify the bleeding source and use adjuncts. So coagulation, suturing, topical hemostatic agents, whatever it takes to control that bleeding. In terms of the abdomen, we are talking about a trauma laparotomy with packing of the abdomen and systematically removing those packs to identify the bleeding source and, again, using whatever means necessary to control that bleeding. And in the pelvis, operative management of pelvic bleeding includes pelvic packing, extraperitoneal pelvic packing. Typically, the orthopedic surgeons would do an external fixation at the same time so that you're packing against a solid ring. And after you've done your surgical control of bleeding, then use other adjuncts such as angioembolization to help with control um, prior to transfer to the intensive care unit where damage control resuscitation continues. And in these situations, you would do a temporary abdominal closure with the aim to come back in 24 to 48 hours once the patient's physiology was stabilized to then either do further damage control surgery if the patient's not yet ready for it or definitive operation, uh, depending on what the issues are. I guess the other things to talk about in terms of stopping the bleeding are the role of uh, angioembolization in the absence of operative surgery. So I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the primary role of angioembolization, particularly in solid organ injuries, um, and then also uh, in, in limb injuries, there may be a role for primary amputation as a way to control hemorrhage. 
Did you know there were five stages of damage control surgery, Ben? (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know this either. (laughs) So apparently the first one is patient selection. So making sure you choose a patient that really does need damage control surgery. They talk about overuse of damage control surgery also potentially being dangerous. And some of the indications for damage control surgery are significant hemodynamic instability, patient who's hypothermic, coagulopathic, or acidotic, and patients with significant surgical issues like complex life-threatening injuries, so major vascular injuries, hollow viscous injuries, complex solid organ injuries, um, and patients who have complex problems that are going to be difficult to repair in a timely fashion. And then the other thing to consider are resource demands. So if you're in a mass casualty situation, you have limited resources, you may do damage control so you can get more people through theatre. You may also not know that you're going to do a damage control operation until the operation has started. So it's always useful to constantly revisit the patient's condition and the uh, operative findings to determine whether or not damage control or definitive care is appropriate. And close communication with the anaesthetists who may let you know that things aren't looking good from their end when you weren't aware. So the second stage of damage control surgery is operative hemorrhage and contamination control, which we've talked about. The third stage is physiological restoration in the intensive care. Step four is definitive surgery. And step five is abdominal wall closure. So I thought that was a nice little summary of the steps that you might consider when talking about damage control surgery. So much easier said than it is done, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Or remembered for the exam. Yeah, exactly. So the last thing I had to talk about was all the different coagulation assays and TEG and Rotem. Do you have these at your hospital? We have Rotem and I've looked at all the different sausages stuck on the wall and forgotten them straight away. So uh, it's something that is usually monitored by the anaesthetist in in my experience, but I think we should understand the principles. From what I understand, it's a more useful assessment than the normal coagulation tests that we send because it's point of care, so it can be done in theatres or in ICU. It's quite quick, so you can actually see the clot forming in real time and make decisions about what you're going to do rather than waiting a couple of hours for the results to come back from the lab. And it also gives you a little bit more information about which specific factors the patient needs in order to address coagulopathy. TEG and Rotem are the two different tests. They're basically different brands or different machines. And I've seen some places comparing them saying that they're pretty similar and some places comparing them saying that they're quite different. So I think get familiar with whichever system is in your hospital and talk about that. I find TEG much easier to understand than Rotem in terms of the shape that it makes. So that was what I was going to decide to learn for the exam. So the way it works is blood is placed in a little cup And inside the cup is a pin, which is connected to a little torsion wire. And the cup oscillates around this wire. And as the clot grows, this moves the wire more. And then as it breaks down, the wire moves less. And that's how you get this little shape on the printout. And they use kaolin to start the clotting process, which I think is a type of clay. 
And basically the little shape that you get tells you what's going on. So the main ones I remember are the R time or the reaction time. And this is basically from the start of the contact with the kaolin until the graph starts to diverge, so the straight line. And this can be influenced by anticoagulants that the patient's on. So if they're on warfarin or heparin, you can reverse those. And also can be due to a lack of clotting factors. So you would give FFP if that time was prolonged. So then the little lines start to diverge and there's the K measure and K stands for kinetics. And it's the time it takes for the little line to reach an amplitude of 20 millimeters. That time can be prolonged if the patient doesn't have enough fibrinogen. So you give them cryoprecipitate if that time is prolonged. And then the next one is the alpha angle. So this is the angle from the start of those little points diverging to the time that it takes to get to that amplitude of 20 millimeters. Um, And this angle can be uh, shortened, so lessened, if the patient, again, doesn't have enough fibrinogen. So you just give them cryo. And then the second last measure is the maximum amplitude, so the size of the clot. And this basically has to do with the strength of the clot. And that is influenced mostly by platelets. So if the maximum amplitude is very narrow, then you give them platelets. And then the last number is a number you get at 30 minutes. And this is the percentage of the clot that's broken down at 30 minutes. And this is influenced by thrombinolysis. So if the patient has a lot of lysis at 30 minutes, then you give them tranexamic acid. So a summary of that is the R time, you treat with FFP. The alpha angle, you treat with cryo. The amplitude, you treat with platelets. And the lysis, you treat with tranexamic acid. And that's my summary. I think that's a great explanation. (laughs) There's also an excellent explanation of this on the Life in the Fast Lane website with some great pictures that I think are worth looking at. Yeah, definitely have a look at some of the graphs and what they look like. I think Life in the Fast Lane also has a picture of different glasses and the shape of the glass is what you give. So if it's a brandy tumbler, then you do nothing. If it's a red wine glass, then that means that the R time is really long because it's got a long stem before it starts to diverge. So you give FFP. If it's a test tube, so the maximum amplitude is narrow, then you give them platelets. If it's a champagne flute, so the angle is less because it's a thin little champagne glass, then you give cryo. And if it's an upside down martini glass, so it the, th- the clot gets lysed really quickly, then you give tranexamic acid. I quite liked that. And that's it for this episode on Introduction to Trauma. Thanks so much, Ben, for joining me. Please leave us some love with a review on the podcast. It makes it easier for others to find and we love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!